Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone. I'm Christina Namath, Director of the Travel Program here at the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to today's film screening of Los Hermanos, The Brothers, the award-winning documentary by filmmakers Marsha Jarmel and Ken Schneider. We're happy to have Marsha and Ken here for the panel discussion afterward, along with virtuoso violinist Ilmar Gavilan, one of the stars of the film. Ilmar, who you will soon get to know, is also a member of the Harlem Quartet, which was founded 15 years ago by the Sphinx Organization, a national nonprofit dedicated to building diversity in classical music and led by president and artistic director Afa Dworkin, who's also one of our speakers today. Leading our discussion will be Rebecca Malian, education director at SF Jazz. So grab your popcorn and enjoy the film. We'll see you afterwards. I was 14 and my brother was only eight when I left Cuba. We didn't have the chance to play music together. Worse than that is we didn't have a chance to be in each other's life. Havana is only 90 miles from Florida. What the United States was doing was not working. This is not just about politics. This is about family. Aldo and Ilmar Lopez Gavilan are brothers from Havana, Cuba. Years separated them as Aldo played piano in Cuba and Ilmar formed the Harlem Quartet as a violin player in New York. Ilmar and I have always had this dream to play together, to travel the entire world together. While collaborating with my brother, he said, dream come true. Please. Welcome, wonderful Ilmar and Aldo Lopez Gavilan. Before these days, we were not able to play in the, in the US, so it's very emotional to share the stage with my brother. By not having so much exchange, we're missing out on so many great musicians. This is a friend I made down in Cuba, incredible composer and pianist. Oh my God, this is amazing. Lincoln Center, Joshua Bell, Dave Matthews, the whole orchestra. And like, go. It's like really big for us, really big. This is going to change music. This moment feels like a rebirth of possibilities. Effective immediately, I am canceling the last administration's deal with Cuba. Now wondering what happens next in a relationship between Cuba and the U.S., which was beginning to change. The thing is, in music, you're always finding the language inside the music. We have a very distorted view. Cuba's incredibly creative and rich culture. La cultura no puede tener fronteras ni límites the possibility. All of that came from a dream from here. This is my paradise. Through music, sometimes you can achieve more powerful things than with politics. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Having been to Cuba over the years with numerous Commonwealth Club groups, I'm certainly looking forward to some changes ahead in terms of travel between our two countries. 
Now, I'm pleased to introduce our discussion leader and moderator for today's panel. Rebecca Malion is an internationally renowned musician, recording artist, and educator specializing in Afro-Caribbean and Latin jazz music. She is the author of several acclaimed texts on Cuban music, including the recent book co-authored with legendary Cuban pianist Chucho Valdez, entitled Decoding Afro-Cuban Jazz. Malion is professor of the Roots Jazz and American Music Program at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, a tenured professor at City College of San Francisco, and is director of education at SF Jazz. She is also an accomplished lecturer and clinician specializing in Latin American music and performance practice. Please join me in welcoming Rebecca Malion. Thank you so much, Christina, and thank you and welcome everyone. So great to be here with all of you watching and our distinguished panel of guests. Uh, before I introduce them, I just want to acknowledge the importance of this film in bridging so many different topics that we'll be discussing today. So first of all, I'd like to thank the Commonwealth Club for inviting me to uh, host this uh, panel, if you will, and also to um, acknowledge that SF Jazz and many of our arts providers in the, in the Bay Area are very much in solidarity around this conversation that we're going to have, be having about solidarity and justice and uh, diversity in the arts. So I'd like to start by introducing our speakers, beginning with Afa Dworkin, a recipient of Kennedy Center's Human Spirit Award, as well as one of Musical America's top 30 influencers in the nation and Detroit Crane's 40 Under 40. Afa Dworkin is a musical thought leader and cross-sector strategist, driving national programming that promotes diversity in classical music. She currently serves as president and artistic director of the Sphinx Organization, the nation's leading organization transforming lives through the power of diversity in the arts. She oversees strategic and artistic initiatives through which Sphinx expands access to classical music education and supports a national roster of distinguished musicians of color while annually reaching 10,000 through its programming and more than 2 million through live and broadcast audiences. Ms. Dworkin's own music training began with Soviet training at the prestigious Azerbaijan National Conservatory. She joined the Ann Arbor Symphony Orchestra as an entering freshman at the University of Michigan School of Music, where she earned her bachelor's and master's degrees in violin performance. Please help me welcome Atha Dworkin. Now, Ilmar Gavilan. Violinist Ilmar Gavilan, a native of Havana, Cuba, has had a remarkable career that has taken him all over the world. He has performed for global leaders, including President Barack Obama and Queen Sofia of Spain, as well as with diverse and renowned artists, including Isaac Perlman and Chick Corea. As a soloist, Mr. Gavilan has performed concertos with Atlanta, New Jersey, Baltimore, Detroit, Milwaukee, St. Louis, Hartford, Nashville, Ann Arbor, Santa Monica, Phoenix, Denver, Louisiana, Anchorage, Santa Fe, Havana, Mexico City, and Venezuela symphonies. A first prize laureate in the Sphinx competition and top honor recipient at the Lipinski, Bianowski, and Henry Sering international competitions, Gavilan is a founding member of the Harlem String Quartet. Alongside his accomplished classical music career, he has performed with jazz legends Chick Corea and Gary Burton, a collaboration that rendered him a Grammy for the recording of the Hot House album as member of the Harlem Quartet. Welcome, Ilmar. And Marsha Jarmel has produced and directed a slate of award-winning films for Patchworks Films. She also works as a consultant and impact strategist on a broad range of films, including the Oscar nominee Last Day of Freedom and HBO's Emmy-nominated 50 Children. She has taught both undergrad and graduate film courses at NYU and Chapman University and been honored with numerous other residencies. 
She has served as a juror for the Emmys, Bayback Media Maker, and many film festivals. Other credits include co-editing the Academy Award nominee for Better or for Worse and assistant, assistant producing the Academy Award nominees Berkeley in the 60s and Freedom on My Mind. Welcome, Marsha. Ken Schneider is a Peabody-winning producer-director who has also edited nearly 40 feature documentaries for PBS, HBO, Showtime, and Al Jazeera, and others. He received a Peabody as co-producer and editor of Soft Vengeance and edited the Oscar-nominated Regret to Inform. Other films he edited have earned multiple Emmys, a Columbia DuPont, three Peabodies, an Indie Spirit, and top awards at the Sundance Film Festival. Ken has taught at NYU Tisch, Chapman University, and City College of San Francisco. Ken is drawn to stories of war and peace, human rights, artists, American history, contemporary social issues, and Cuba. Please join me in welcoming these extraordinary guests and artists today. So first of all, for you viewers, uh, if you have a question that you'd like me to ask of our guests, please put it in the text chat in your live stream, and we'll get to as many questions as we can uh, today. So I'm going to get started. Um, when we were talking about the themes of this conversation with these illustrious artists, um, we've been talking about things around uh, the Cuban musical diaspora, uh, representation and equity in the arts, the power and the, of cultural transformation, and the connections between Cuba and the United States. So I think my first question is going to be to Ilmar. If you could share with us a little bit about your musical education and upbringing in Cuba, um, the film so poignantly expresses this conversation between you and your family and between the island's music education system and its many incredibly talented students. So if you could take us on a little bit of a journey through your musical education experience growing up in Cuba. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me and um, these wonderful people. Um, in Cuba, you have to do an audition to even start music at the elementary uh, level. <clears throat> um, uh, so you have to first pass a test that has to do with natural conditions. Uh, you, you do like an ear test. Kids, um, kids have to clap back certain rhythms. And it's funny because uh, I, Julia, uh, pre-college, has a similar test. And my daughter would, would be, you know, she would show me like what she's supposed to do. And it's very different. Ours has a lot of Afro-Cuban rhythms uh, in it. And uh, and we most kids repeat by ear without even worrying about notation. Um, so that's already a difference here. I think if you want to study music, you you uh, most likely get in unless it's some, somewhere very you know, fancy or specific. Um, um, then, um, my, my t-shirt actually was Russian in Cuba. Uh, so I, I was very familiar with that, uh, school and the, the approach is very direct compared to, to kids here. Uh, the, you know, usually the treatment is a little bit more sure coded and positive reinforcement. I don't remember a lot of that, uh, growing up. I, I remember <laughs> slightly different approach. Uh, like, what are you doing? <laughs> are you are you listening? <laughs> so um, that's that's that. But with that said, uh, it's a very happy and very um, free environment. Uh, by free, I mean uh, there, there's no like um, I don't know situations other than musical. 
like here your your status in society makes a bit of a difference your your um, particular like uh, race here makes a difference uh, in Cuba it, most people are mixed uh, the topic of race is uh, is there but it's not as prominent as it is here and definitely the the, the financial uh, status of people exist in Cuba too don't get me wrong but uh, most people are you know, very similar living conditions and uh, that doesn't play a role also in the when you study uh, like whether or not you can afford like you know private lessons I don't remember private lessons I I only remember just my lessons at school Uh, that's while I was in Cuba before I went to Russia later Right. And making that accessibility a priority, I think, is one of the, the great benefits of the music education system. Certainly influenced, as you mentioned, by the Russian or the Soviet era at the time. Um, you know, th- this is such a fascinating story, and, and we're definitely going to touch more on that. And certainly, you know, the, you and your brother's kind of upbringing in slightly different, you know, um, spheres. Um, but I wanted to turn it over to Marsha and Ken to talk a little bit about, first of all, the idea for the documentary and how you first met, you know, the Gavilan family and sort of the process of telling this compelling story during what was, and as we've seen, a very critical time in U.S.-Cuba relations. So for either Ken or Marsha, just to kind of take us a little bit on your journey to to get us to this wonderful story. All right. Thank you, Rebecca. I first want to sort of say what how exciting it is to be in this dialogue because this is the dialogue that we want our film to catalyze. I mean, here we are, a uh, a, a classical musician um, and a jazz educator who crosses over to Cuban and Latin American and classical music. Afa, um, uh, who is part of one of the most interesting music organizations and foundations in America today. And we're, we're thrilled because this... Uh, this is the landscape in which uh, our film is now landing. Um, now, for us, that the the film, the entry point for the film was the music. Um, although it started with my going to a, a concert in Cuba, uh, it was opening night for the Havana Jazz Fest in 2014, and it was at the same moment, maybe even the same day or the day after uh, what is now in Cuba's D-17, which is a moment when President Obama and Raul Castro decided to loosen restrictions, which ultimately made a lot of things possible, including Ilma and Aldo's collaboration and including our making the film. Um, but I saw that night uh, a concert, uh, I saw Aldo play, and I think of myself as a music guy and uh and I think of myself as someone who knew a little bit about Cuban music, but I, I was completely blown away that night with Aldo and a few of his best friends. And Rebecca, you know who they are, the Lopez Nusa boys and, and the Rodney Barreto and Yaroldi. And it was just a beautiful moment, and I was completely smitten by it. And uh, I came home a few days later and said to Marsha, uh, you know, because we were looking for a, an art story about Cuba, I said, I think I found it. There's this guy, he's 36 at the time. We've all got a little grayer, right, Ilmar, since then. And um, uh, I said, you know, y- y- you got to check him out. The music is ungodly. And, uh, you know, Marcia said, okay, great, good music. Um, what's the story? And, uh, and then um, we had the good fortune to meet Ilmar in New York. We had a screening of another one of our uh, Cuban short films. Um, and we had brunch together. It was a lovely 
wonderful conversation, very fun. And at the end of that brunch, Ilmar said to us, you know, Aldo's coming. And we had no idea. So, um, you know, at that point, you know, the light bulb went on and we thought, well, there's a story. And it, it had um, so many elements to it. You know, it's a little bit of a road movie, but it also has that kind of uh, classical, you know, two brothers separated by fate, reunited kind of um, arc to it. And we knew that something was going to happen. We weren't sure what was going to happen. And six weeks later, we were filming. It's it's really a remarkable story. And so it was because of your meeting Ilmar, then he introduced you to Afa and, and her um, amazing trajectory. And so I definitely would like to turn this over to Afa and talk about um, promoting diversity, you know, in classical music. Certainly this is a conversation that is happening right now uh, on a much broader scale when we're talking about arts and organizations and businesses and other institutions um, really trying to frame the conversation around equity and diversity and inclusion. And certainly the mission-driven work that you've been doing with Sphinx Organization is so critical. There's just, I think yesterday, a piece in the New York Times talking about uh, the mentoring program um, and this, this networking program that you're doing, uh, recommending that organizations dedicate 15% of their annual budgets to diversity initiatives for at least 10 years. And that really struck a chord for me, working with SF Jazz and many of us are artists and artists organizations, the importance of promoting diversity. So if you could speak a little bit to the work that you're doing and, and how this, this came about and your intersection with Ilmar. Absolutely. It is, I, I join my colleagues and friends here in, in saying that it is an, a privilege and an honor to be in this company and, and certainly a delight to be able to talk about uh, the music, the mission, and the incredible artists. So Sphinx was launched more than 24 years ago, a little more. Um, but the idea of diversifying classical music, really the mission statement is transforming lives through the power of diversity in the arts. And for me, it struck a chord at the time. Um, the organization was founded by my then classmate, um, a biracial violinist who often found himself to be the only person of any color in any musical setting. So not surprisingly, um, it met with frustration and really that sense of um, really void. Uh, I think fortunately for all of us, um, Aaron is someone who does something about <laughs> that feeling. So he set out, even as an undergraduate student, he set out to found an organization and start an effort that would begin to change that paradigm. So myself being a transplant for also Soviet Union, that is where my foundation also is, I found the concept to be laudable, but a bit foreign. I grew up with the idea that music, classical music, the arts overall, don't know demographics. It is about solidarity, unity, and no color, no zip code, really nothing that differentiates us. And while that may have been a comfortable zone for me, coming to the States really in the most jarring of ways showed me that that's unrealistic because we began as students to reflect on the fact that there's not a singular black or brown composer we can recall um, on our memories by whom we would study a concerto or whose symphony we would perform a whose string quartet we would study. And that began to bother me, actually. I, I wondered why that was the case. Um, so for Aaron, it was self-reflection and a desire and a drive, almost a sense of duty to do something about it. I think he wanted to uplift young, young people much like himself. He was convinced that the talent is out there. So it was just a matter of um, shedding a spotlight, providing opportunities 
and being able to connect these artists so that they would begin to build a community and a network and recognize that they're not the only ones. Um, so kind of fast forward many more years now and a few more gray hairs, as you said, um, I, I think the most important, the single most important attribute um, to Sphinx about our work is building that community, building that sense of family. We literally refer to our 800 plus alumni as La Familia, El Marnosis, um, and it's growing every year. So I think while we're certainly moving the needle in the sphere of systemic change and lasting change and scale of this work in diversity. I mean, Sphinx has uh, nearly 198 orchestral partners, 25 conservatories and music schools across the country and, and dozens of presenting houses, institutions. Um, and through our work together, we are certainly striving to make a difference. But I think while those numbers are really important, I continue to call for things like dedicate your budget and dedicate your programming to reflect the communities that we serve. Otherwise, our art form becomes irrelevant. And when it's irrelevant, it's extinct. Who does it really represent when there's no reciprocity and no connection? Um, so I think here we have this opportunity to really build that connection and shed light upon voices that have always been there. Uh, but I think the most important piece is for artists to know that they have like-minded individuals, uh, many of whom have similar stories, and that it is a community that is all about supporting, uplifting, amplifying these voices. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You know, I think representation is key and clearly the work that you, you've been doing and what Ilmar has been, you know, the beneficiary of and certainly coming here to the United States must have been quite a transformation. So Ilmar, I wanted to turn it back to you for a moment in the process then of seeing your musical career kind of take a different turn than your brother Aldo's. Um, coming to the United States, what was your first impression about your place? You know, as Afa mentioned, kind of trying to see voices amplified and not finding yourself perhaps represented in, in, the, in the classical music field. Tell us a little bit about that process for you. That's, that's a great question. Um, uh, I remember um, coming into USC in Los Angeles and uh, the dean wanted to meet me because the professor uh, suggested a full scholarship and the dean just wanted to meet who is this guy. And, and when I opened the door, uh, he said, oh, you, if I didn't know you're a violinist, I would have, I would have thought you're a trombone player. And to these days, I, I always, you know, like thought, was that a racial comment or, or a funny comment? Because maybe I'm not petite. I don't know what that meant. But I wasn't An actually overweight. An comment, perhaps. I think I, I, I think I didn't want to face it. Uh, but that was my my first and probably most overt uh, uh, realization that race uh, plays a role in, in, in classical music because we, we formed these images, which I didn't form, by the way. I live in the widest country in the history, in Russia, and I didn't form, I didn't form a, a racist concept. Like, they saw me like somebody from somewhere else, but not nothing, not, not like... Uh, like uh, you know, like you should be a trombonist just based on your look. <laughs> so that that's just my my most uh, vivid. Um, and then I was super excited because I was in actually in LA when uh, a, a Cuban Cuban musician 
saw an ad of Sphinx in her school where she used to uh, teach. And, uh, you know, I read the ad and the ad was so weird for me. It's like a a competition for for these specific groups that are underrepresented. Well, that sounds great. Let me just check it out. And uh, sure enough, uh, it was a perfect match uh, because I met other people like myself that uh, we're, we're, we're like rare. We're like manatees. (laughs) <laughs> you know, in, in a danger of extinction, but not anymore because we know of each other and uh, we we did forge bonds that are so great to these days. And uh, uh, I don't remember, but I think I have something to do with the term La Familia. I, I kind of remember one of the first times we used that. Uh, it was, I don't know. I don't want to take credit for that. It's too much of a good word. But uh, but um, I'm happy to remember that I was one of the first, uh, you know, people from from Sphinx that uh, really uh, my life really changed after that tremendously. So as our new vice president said, it, uh, you may be the first, but you will not be the last. And I think what is so extraordinary about this, and and actually in the, in the film, and Joshua Bell has that moment with Aldo where he's talking about trying to grasp some of the syncopated lines of the melody of Aldo's piece. And I guess there's a moment where Aldo speaks to that in the, in the, the narration where he says, yes, there's something intrinsic about the Cuban music that is like a stamp, that is something that's there, an indelible part of your musicianship. Even if you have become a quote unquote classical artist, that there's something about that Cuban sound that penetrates who you are. And I was just curious between Afa and Ilmar, that moment of discovery, that moment of finding the the possibility of going beyond the paradigm of classical repertoire. Was there a conversation around, you know, perhaps reaching a broader scope of, of, of composers or, you know, opportunities to explore repertoire? Sure, I can I can get us started in many ways. Ilmar is is a member of La Familia for sure. Um, I think in many ways he is a living example of what happens when you really amplify a voice of an artist. Um, I always say to my colleagues, let's be careful and not say discover because um, it, it's it's a talent and a voice that's always been there, right? So you discover for yourself, but you cannot. Um, in many ways, it's it's not speaking on behalf of an artist by any means, but it is about amplifying their existing voice. So several years into, um, Ilmar was a participant in one of the earliest competitions. The Sphinx competition launched in 98. I think 1999, we welcomed Ilmar to Ann Arbor, Michigan. I still remember that. And I remember meeting your mom eventually. And as we were on the road with your solo performances, we started talking about chamber music and the importance of collaborating with others and Collaboration is, as you know, at the heart of that discovery, of that elaboration, that openness, and and really that mental agility that invites cross-genre and and ways in which we will reach audiences that we didn't know previously. So uh, while also serving on the teaching faculty of our Sphinx Performance Academy, probably, I want to say, four or five years into Sphinx's existence, I remember sitting with Ilmar and then not yet formed Harlem Quartet and then talking about reading music together. And in fact, I remember a conversation about a Beethoven Quartet. 
and some of the rhythmic characteristics of what's there and how, in fact, it can be reimagined from the standpoint of non-classical music. It caught my attention and it became an early thought that I know Aaron really harnessed. And the idea there was, what if we do launch a professional uh, string quartet? And what if it becomes something that represents Sphinx, but more, it really provides that avenue. And I think those were the beginnings of the Harlem Quartet. And as it was being formed out of Sphinx laureates and musicians, we saw them really take that creative thought and bend the traditional conventional definitions of a string quartet and open that up into something that was genre non-defining, genre bending, and all with the eye of discovery of new um, and young audiences. And I remember watching that because for Sphinx, it has been, in fact, largely about classical music and about really establishing and insisting on the value of inclusion and diversity within classical music. So it's really introducing that into um, the genre. But at the same time, we've had the opportunity to work with artists who um, are broader than that. And, uh, you know, consistently we work with composers who, who think outside of that con those confines. And that's, that's such a rich experience. So to have seen Harlem Quartet really take that thought and, and run with it, it's been, it's been a delight. And Ilmar, so, uh, you know, the, the quartet's repertoire in general is something that, you know, you've been developing, obviously, over the years. But the moment when this film project was, was introduced and Ken and Marsha, you know, came up with this, this wonderful you know, opportunity to tell your story, um, was there a conversation about um, your brother's compositions, about looking at other potential composers' works and how we, you might address this conversation around breaking this, this sort of gender or genre barrier of, of, of the art? Yes, for sure. Um, and Nafa is absolutely right. Uh, the, the first time we start playing uh, non-classical music, it had a very practical objective. We wanted to hold the attention of these young kids from uh, Harlem public schools uh, with our beautiful Haydn minuets. There was just this much, uh, we could hold them. But then I would switch to a conga by my father, for instance, and said, so what these two pieces have in common? They will raise their hands. Oh, nothing. So, well, no, they're two dances. They're actually two dances. People, believe it or not, used to dance to me. You know, it's just like now, and then we just do a conga line and, and walk with it and run the outreach that way. Uh, and, you know, the need to, to be, uh, as Afa said, uh, to express and, and mirror uh, the audience that we had not only in the way we look, but what kind of musical language we're bringing. Uh, uh, that need is what made us expand our repertoire. I remember we started with Take the A Train, our very first jazz piece. And, uh, and little by little, we became uh, bilingual, just to say, musically speaking. And we became more and more comfortable with, with the language. And it caught the ears of actual great jazz players. Not us wannabes, but the real deals. It's like, you know, I heard you guys come play this. Huh? And then, you know, all of a sudden we're playing with the real deals, like Chick Korea and, and even winning a Grammy with him, which still I, I go like this, like, really, this happened? And what's curious is that my brother always had a much closer affinity to jazz. 
maybe being a pianist makes him a little closer to the language of jazz, especially in Cuba. And, I'm, you know, uh, and he hears things like, you play with Chick Corea, that's what I want to do. And the opposite is true also. Uh, Claudio Abado, one of my biggest heroes, uh, he went to Cuba and uh, he participated uh, in a family concert that we give almost every year. Every New Year's Eve, you know, my dad conducts, the two brothers play, sometimes my mom also play. So Claudio Abado was in Havana. He, uh, I, I met him in a, before in a youth orchestra, Gustav Mahler Youth Orchestra uh, situation. So I, I play under his baton uh, before. It's not like, I, you know, I just invited him randomly. I said, Maestro, we're playing. We've been honored if you come. And Aldo played that day. And he was completely fascinated by, by Aldo and started inviting him, not me, the, non, the jazzer, the jazzer <laughs> in theory. And uh, he said, the only thing is I do want you to improvise the Mozart cadenzas. So here it is, Aldo playing with Abado and me playing with Chick Corea. What an amazing um, reversal of, of destiny. But at the same time, these two parallel life, musical life, made us both uh, explore more than what we were born into. And, uh, and, and now Aldo actually is touring here in the States with classical concertos, not only his compositions, and uh, and yes, of course, I kept doing classical as my main uh, bread and butter. But part of our programs must include American composers, uh, composers that are uh, jazz friendly in the in the language. And uh, there's always uh, that element. And one thing that I make a big emphasis on is not programming that type of composers as an anchor. Like the, you know, like the main dish is the good stuff. No, I do think they're the, the greatest compositions, of course, uh, are by, you know, Beethoven, all of this standard repertoire. I'm not saying that they are not, but I we do program uh, the non-classical per se rep this at the same, uh, uh, with the same respect, not just in the end as a little, just tune just to refresh like a candy. No, 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 no. So that also caught the attention of many reviewers and, pro, you know, people that present classical music because they know that we take it serious. Just like you're very um, serious about playing Mozart with the style of Mozart, you wouldn't be doing, let's say, glissandos or things that are typical of, let's say, gypsy music. You wouldn't do that in Mozart, right? So it's the same. Jazz has its own language. You wouldn't try to beautify it and play with vibrato like if it was opera. Uh, so we we place it in programs according to the respect that it deserves, and also we apply a different uh, technique and a different sound um, scape, giving the exactly same respect we would have given to uh, to different composer within classical music. And I, th I think that's the key because we're talking about equitable representation of all of this diverse repertoire of the genre, musical genres and composers. But if anything, I think Cuban music education has always been kind of a representation of that triumvirate 
although perhaps in the conservatory methodology, Cuban music or popular music was sort of assumed or a given, then you had the classical training in school, and then jazz sort of in secret, right? It wasn't until much later that jazz became sort of codified in, in musical pedagogy in Cuba, as, as perhaps as recent as 2012, you know, upon the different visits of jazz artists coming to, to Cuba during various opportunities. But but I think this is what's key about what this film shows and, and the relationship between Aldo and, and you and also to your respective kind of musical development, that this this blending of jazz and classical and, and Cuban music, folkloric and popular music, is something that is that secret sauce, right? And I think that's what resonates with all of us when we watch this film is seeing that um, as much as you coming to the United States and becoming embraced within the classical genre, we are also seeing that you have something that many classical musicians do not. And that's that's that secret sauce that I think is so compelling. Um, I know we don't have much time. We, we definitely want to get to questions, but I did want to ask Ken and Marsha, you've made other films about Cuba. What got you kind of started on that whole trajectory? What 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 got the Cuba bug in you? Uh, I, there's a good story behind that, but I just wanted to follow up briefly to um, um, what Ilmar spoke about. I'm fascinated by all these these intersections, these intersections of of nation and culture and genre, and just what you said, Rebecca. That I, I you know, when I when we told people we were making a film about Cuban music, the typical answer would be, "Oh, when have you seen Social Club?" And I, I I like that music. You know, it's fine. But I was once in a car with Aldo in Havana, and he said, "Look, there's Eliades Ochoa." And there was, uh, you know, there he was with his hat and everything. So, you know, there there are those intersections too. But but what we got from hanging out with with Aldito and Ilmar and and Guido, their their father and Dai, Aldo's wife and conductor, um, was that that particular cocktail of of the Western canon, the uh, inflections of jazz. And the influence of the you know Afro-Cuban rhythms from the east of the island, you know, from Africa, that is a you know there, there's there's shades of it in Brazil, there's shades of it in Colombia, but 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 Cubanismo is a particular um, musical lexicon. So we we are are totally um, I'm smitten by that, and to me that's also reflected in the work that uh, Afa is doing and the work that we want the film to do, which is to create juxtapositions. That, are, that have been difficult to do, um, you know, about about showing the film to youth of color who don't normally have access to classical music. So thank you for that. Can I just hop in? Because um, I've been listening to all of this and and super um, excited that this conversation is taking place, because that's really was our dream with this film, that it would create opportunities for this conversation. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to say to the point of um of, of this kind of mixture of styles opening a door that we, the first time I ever saw Aldo and Ilmar play just the two of them together was in Napa for a high school class. Do you remember this, Ilmar? Um, maybe you do this all the time, but it really struck me. Um, it was like a high school of last resort. And these kids had, I think had never been in a concert hall before. And they came in with their, you know, uh, sweatshirts up on the phone, completely disinterested. And an hour later, they're tapping their feet, they're raising their hands to answer questions. You could see the door open. Um, and they were, I think your, your entire program is all those music, but there's this such a range in, in what you two do together. And it really was like a, a window into another world. And um, super exciting to see that music can do that, that this music can do that, 
and these musicians can do that. It's, it's fantastic. It is, and it is immensely powerful. It is absolutely, yeah. um, it is, it's the, it's the, the key to the soul, you know, and so much of what we've seen in particular here in the United States with, with public education is the um, inaccessible uh, route to the arts. You know, the fact that there is not enough access and equity in arts education and students of color in particular, students of color are particularly um, left out of that conversation uh, in many parts of what we would consider to be affluent areas of, of this country. So I think it's, it's important to kind of center that, you know, here we are looking at two brothers whose experiences were very, very uh, informed by um, a sort of mandate uh, of artistic uh, education and expression. And yet, you know, a little bit different in their journey. Um, we do have some, some wonderful questions from, from, artists, from our audience coming in, but I did want to ask one other thing. Ilmar, if you could speak a little bit to um, that, the complexity, uh, and then you touch on it in the film, Marsha and, and, um, and Ken, but this, this complexity of the political and social um, relationship between our two countries and how that has impacted families, you and your brother having remarkably different trajectories in your careers. If you could just touch a little bit on that uh, and the impact on, on our sort of sociopolitical differences and how that's shaped your relationships. Absolutely. Uh, that's actually a heartbreaking uh, topic because if if relations were normal, uh, Aldo and I would have been playing together way long, long, longer than just a few years when we had that little window through through the Obama's um, opening. And uh, this is just one of the many cases where that's the case. Uh, so I'm, I'm very happy that the story uh, is out there because it can help uh, people here in the States uh, to look at uh, this situation through the family lens and uh, the artists here in the States can look at it through the lens of how much we're missing from this artistic dialogue. I love when these uh, people came to Cuba and they they were really, really happy to be there. And and, and I remember Winter Marsalis, the first time he went to Cuba, um, uh, I met him here in New York and he was saying, oh my gosh, we've been missing so much. And uh, he always uh, wanted me to remind him of, of, the, of the other clave, the Wawanko clave. <laughs> uh, but anyways, um, I love that Joshua Ball said that once he played Aldo's piece, he, he looks at classical music differently. And he has a different sense because we always talk about it with Harlem Quartet. Uh, it's so true. Like we, we learned the theory that, uh, you know, Mozart was a great improviser or that Bach was a great improviser. And and uh, it, and I always like to think whatever makes it to the page is like the first version of the improv that he felt at the moment. But we have to recapture the spirit of improvisation. How exactly you recapture that spirit if you never experience improvising yourself? So I think uh, we, we got to that conclusion in Harlem Quartet long ago. But I'm so happy that somebody that I respect so much, like Joshua Bell, said after playing this, you know, I look at classical music a little differently. And, um, and uh, it's the same with families, it's the same with two countries. Once you taste the spice of another country, you want it in your food too. And that's the beauty of America. We, we embrace all of this culture and it makes it, frankly, a wonderful Absolutely. Spice jars grow in, in your kitchen. <laughs> you know, um, speaking of, of, of all of these different things, Afa, it reminds me of just this importance of peace building that comes from 
what we're talking about here, which is musical ambassadorship. Um, it is such a critical part of our dialogue, whether we're talking about sociopolitical differences, socioeconomic differences, racial differences. Um, so if you could speak to, you know, your focus, your mission-driven work, and, and how this can continue and what people can do to support the importance of this work. Absolutely. Well, just in the same vein and similarly to how we view music education, um, an essential aspect of any young person's development as essential as arithmetics or uh, the languages. In, essentially, it is a development of a skill set that is another language. Um, it is an avenue for expression. It is, it's something that inspires um, self-agency and, and really encourages young people to view themselves um, as citizens of the world. So in that way, when you juxtapose that with the fact that talent knows no demographics, we know that there's not a scarcity of talent amongst black and brown communities. In fact, it, all the resources in the world couldn't possibly address all the talent that's out there. So a way to insist on the importance of that is to continue to invest in the concept that music education and, and performing arts as a whole, as a sector, um, is something that's it's essential for our communities, is essential to continue to be supported and um, to seek out ways to provide avenues for these voices to be heard um, in formal ways, informal ways, and, and to really find part of what Sphinx does is try and minimize those barriers. Um, really try to minimize barriers to access and for any young person with an affinity um, that does not otherwise have resources to provide that opportunity to study and then really to look at the incredible plethora of talent that's already there and, and really show that to the world. In many ways, I think uh, while nonprofits are apolitical organizations, I think the ambassadorship piece is so essential. Um, our Global Scholars Program really equips our artists to go to different countries and teach, learn, and perform in front of and with um, their colleagues from different cultures because we really feel that um, in many ways, performing arts and classical music in particular is behind the ball. Many other sectors have done better with diversifying in that they've put in one room people who don't do not look like or think like one another to breed that innovation, to, to lead and drive ways in which we can improve a particular field. And it's, it's really an important time for us to do that, to really put people together and, and really fight for and insist upon that diversity, because I think ultimately that's inseparable from our concept of excellence. Uh, I think excellence and diversity go hand in hand together. And it is really essential if we care about our sector, if we care about the performing arts, we should care about that connection to the community. Absolutely. We must insist, as you say. We absolutely must insist. Um, you know, I, I wanted to, um, there was one question that came from uh, Nanette Stringer who asked, uh, I guess it's a question for Ilmar, uh, you know, how are you two brothers doing and your family's doing now? We, you know, have you seen each other recently? When was the last time you saw each other? How are you doing? <laughs> Hey, thanks for asking. Um, not recently. Uh, we were uh, looking forward to going there for uh, for um, the winter break. All of the, the the winter season is a beautiful time to reconnect. Uh, New Year's Eve, Christmas, all of that. And uh, this time around was due to COVID. Um, it, it wasn't safe. And um, uh, so that's that. Uh, we Technology got better. 
Uh, so I'm able to to do some um, face-to-face uh, online with my family, which is a pretty recent <laughs> development in Cuba. It's not great internet, but still, we we recently yesterday was my daughter's birthday, and uh, I you know I got wonderful uh, messages and things like that that uh, at least we can communicate through uh, internet. Thank goodness for that. Uh, just a reminder, we have about 15 minutes left, so please do send us your questions in the chat, and we'll be happy to direct them. Um, you know, the the moment where where you're all uh, trying to find, when you and Aldo are trying to find a recording studio to work in, in Cuba, brought me back, and, and I'm sure Marsha and, and Ken can relate to, you know, the logistical things that we take for granted in a in a modern society. When you're in a place like Cuba that has incredible art and culture, but it's the logistics that usually get you. Um, tell us a little bit about that process, what you were trying to achieve while you were there and what, what you had to give up. Yeah, of course I wanted to record there because, first of all, I never know when Aldo is, is able to come here. So that's a very practical reason. Another reason is because then we have more time to rehearse uh, because, you know, I'm there at home and uh, things are just more you know, slightly uh, more um, comfortable. Um, the price, the price of the studio is is way less over there too. And uh, but then we we kept ruling out places. Now nah, doesn't have a good piano. No, that one is too dry for the violin. Oh no, the engineer here is not. So one thing or another, <laughs> nothing worked. So we couldn't do it and. Uh, by the way, the situation now in Cuba is not great in many aspects. Too, talking about you know, uh, you know, COVID hit uh, developed nations hard. Well, imagine a place like the, like Cuba. Not only is not a developed nation, but it's also uh, confronted with the with the embargo, which you know you cannot get things from 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 here, which uh, would have been very very um, handy at the moment. So uh, there are some strange things happening with the currency also. And uh, uh, so there's slight turmoil in, in Cuba now. And so I don't think people would be thinking of studios and recordings for a while. Although I might be wrong. You know, artists are so creative, so uh, self-sufficient. I see a lot of posts on YouTube. So bravo to my to my uh, compatriots. They still... They still um, show resilience and talent. Absolutely yeah, yeah. find a way. Yes, there was some uh, wonderful live stream concert that um, a few a few different uh, colleagues of ours and musician friends of ours were doing. And uh, you do have to tip your hat to the resourcefulness and resilience. And Ken and Marsha, I was just curious if, you know, you had any sort of like little colorful stories of the moments during the, you know, the capturing of the, of the footage for this film, uh, some of the little challenges that you might have faced and what, you know, some, some kind of main takeaways or highlights from, from the journey. Well, as you can imagine, every shoot in Havana has colorful stories attached to it. The, the challenges we had, to be honest, were um, from our side was um, travel permits, etc. You know, we over the years, we've made four films in Cuba. We've we've flown from every every which way we've gone every which way but swim. And there's times when we've had to go through Mexico. We've, there's times we spent a few days in Miami. You know, Rebecca, you know what I'm talking about. Um, once we're on the ground in Cuba, we have an all-Cuban crew. This is really important to us. We are not um, 
We are not from Cuba. We are not Latinx. Um, you asked about our connection to Cuba. I do have a family story there. My father spent several years there as a refugee from um, from European fascism. Um, so I have a family connection, which goes back to the 40s, and I'm a Spanish speaker. Um, but, you know, we are definitely outsiders, and we're very sensitive to what that means. So we have a an all-Cuban crew, and they really help us figure out what to shoot and how to shoot it and how to navigate if there are any, um, you know, rocky shoals around permissions there. And since things are, def- are done a little differently there, you know, in, in the States, you know, a lunch break on a shoot is, you know, 30 minutes. And, you know, after your cup of coffee, your, 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 you know, your gear is set up, your mic is up in Cuba, it might be three hours and six beers and, and you have to get with that. That's the program. Um, and and Ilmar and Aldo were were very generous. They let us, you know, invade and participate in their lives over the course of two years. Not every day for two years, but um, uh, I'm sure there were times when we were when we were a bother. Um, and we have you know a lot of funny stories and maybe some annoying ones. You know, we were on tour with them. We were on the bus. We were on the, the train. We were on the plane. We went to Niagara Falls together. You know, so um, we got to know each other for better or worse. Marcia, anything to add? Uh, yeah, well, so we did have a certain amount of serendipity with this film, too. I mean, there were cha- some challenges with logistics, but I think, for instance, the scene that takes place at Chautauqua on the 4th of July, we couldn't have scripted that better than what actually just unfolded there. You know, all those American flags and, and the entire audience is white, pretty much. And there they all are, kind of shaking your hands. Welcome, welcome to Aldo. I mean, it was it was fantastic. I mean, I'm watching this unfold, um, standing next to our camera guy, and it was like, wow. I mean, that but that could have been like a story in and of itself. So we were very fortunate that so many of the venues where they were playing would um, gave us permission that we got that fantastic footage from SF Jazz. You're uh, very generous on your part, and. Um, so there were a lot of things, uh, lovely things that, that came together. And we were fortunate that the public television system here decided to put their uh, their might behind it. Um, so we had the money to actually do it. Um, and it will be available in the fall so everyone can see it for free, et cetera. So um, there, were, there were a lot of good things. It's so lovely. And, and again, we are so thrilled to get to share in the story uh, with you and, and Ilmar, with you and your family, um, a few of us were curious about uh, your family, your father in particular, um, if you could talk about him a bit, and also um, the composers that most resonate with people in Cuba. You know, Certainly many people know of Lecuona, but perhaps Ilmar, you and Afa can speak to some of the Cuban composers who are the most um, regarded or highly regarded and influential to you. Um, well, my dad, uh, my dad, uh, you know, I always see him as a dad, but um, uh, here I'm, I'm kind of like helping, uh, like if somebody needs his music, they usually email me and uh, I'm just so amazed that people from uh, that many walks of life and countries want, want his music, especially choir music. I have people from Singapore, from um from Israel, from just very, very different countries, Russia. And uh, and what I love about my dad is that he's so humble and simple. So when he comes here, which it's been a while now, I usually go on YouTube and just type his name and you see his expression like, oh, look at that. 
because he has a lot of views from different like choirs that use his music for competitions, for instance. And so it comes in that the competition of choir, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, whoa, look at that. And there's a lot of his music out there, but um, but not so much on the States. It, here, it, you know, if you live in Cuba, it's, it's hard for 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 just a regular American uh, audience consumer to realize what's happening. Like, it's, it's wonderful, right? And uh, but uh, Cuban music still very uh, very present in the states. Maybe uh, um, Afa can talk a little bit about uh, some of the most uh, well known people from the exile. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think there is definitely a lack of well. I mean, just to even put things in context, I mean, only less than one percent of all music performed by American orchestras by are by composer of any color. So we've got a long ways to go relative to representation. I know things are shifting somewhat that we're finding ourselves in a digital space and there might be a seeming movement in that direction, but not nearly enough. So Latinx composers are not at the forefront of programmers. I, I hope that it will change. Um, we've certainly, Sphinx and the Virtuosi and the Quartet um, have been beneficiaries of music by Ilmar's dad. I, I've personally contacted him to find it because it's beautiful and um, it, it's necessary, it's relevant. We've commissioned people like Tanya Leon several times and certainly um, she is a master in her own right. And, you know, everyone from Leo Brower and Amadeo Roldan, after whom the conservatory is named. There is not a lack of music, but there is a lack of knowledge and lack of seeming, at least observationally so, desire for folks to step outside of the canon and really invite that. And that, that's too bad. I think the time right now is perfectly ripe for us to canonize some of this music and step outside of our can, uh, of our comfort zone and, and really promote it. Completely agree with you there. I think, um, if, if anything, maybe the jazz world, the jazz performance world, has, has been a little bit more of a catalyst for creating awareness and centering uh, more diversity in, in terms of the compositional sphere. And uh, for those of you SF Jazz fans um, and members of SF Jazz, uh, tonight we will be featuring Gonzalo Rubalcaba, uh, one of the premier pianists um, in, the, in the contemporary genre of music of Cuba and of the world, with Pedrito Martinez in a duet. So seeing that, that dynamic play out and... and Grubalcaba, somebody who also comes from a musical lineage, much like you, Ilmar, and your family, the idea of a dynasty. There's many dynasties, the, the Valdez family, Chuchu Valdez and his father, Bebo. So this idea of carrying it forward, but also broadening the scope by reaching through other tentacles, other venues. And I think jazz has been a wonderful way for us to have these conversations about the diversity piece um, in, in, in how music has crossed boundaries. And one of the things that most resonated with me about this film, um, Marsha and, and Ken, is, again, how you're able to seamlessly weave the story, because that is the story of Cuban music. It is a seamless weave, a beautiful tapestry of so many different influences from West Africa, from Spain, from Asia, from the Middle East. I mean, there's so much coming from America, you know, from the United States into Cuba. And I think that is something that comes across in the story, and that's why it's so compelling for us and, and so moving. Um, we only have about five minutes left, so I just, again, want to encourage anyone to please ask questions if you'd like. Um, and I thought maybe we could have uh, one last little uh, moment from each of our guests to kind of 
encapsulate the significance of this story, the significance of why now, and perhaps what we can be looking forward to now that things are a little bit more sane politically, uh, hopefully have, have calmed a bit. Uh, what can we look forward to in the sort of next, next iteration of our, of our trajectories here as artists? Maybe start with Afa. Oh, well, I hope that what we have to look forward to um, is a market change in the way that we see the value of the arts and certainly the value of music, um, not only from the standpoint of exposure and education, but from the standpoint of it being part of the fabric of a society and, and a form through which, an avenue through which people's stories are told. Um, and as such, for me, my big aspiration hope is that not, not only the administration, but really that we as a society um, and members of, of you know, citizens of this country, both figuratively and literally, can can begin to find ourselves and weave our stories through music and have music be something into which we invest, um, really, as a society. For all of the flaws in uh, the country in which I grew up, certainly, um, music education was viewed as essential. And for that, I'm deeply grateful. I think every young person, without regard to color, race, or zip code, deserves that. Um, and I think that's only possible if artists like Ilmar and his brother, like the Harlem Quartet, are given the avenue to do so. So that's what we have to look forward to. And, and I hope and I do trust that artists are the ones who will lead us out of a time of division and confusion and, and really morass. Uh, artists are our leaders and as such, they should be empowered and exalted. Indeed, the arts do matter. Uh, Marcia and Ken, uh, for each well, of you. I, I would uh, say that um, I'm glad that our film sort of is, is coming into the world in this moment because I think there is a kind of turning point happening, uh, riding on the kind of national reckoning around race, which is kind of filtering into every area of life. And um, we're just really excited to share this story and, and have it be an opportunity to have these kind of conversations or to um, give people um, the idea or the opportunity to play this, not just the music in this film, but all the music that we don't know um, here in the U.S. And um, so we're excited to partner with organizations and schools and um, um, music venues to create these kind of opportunities and use this story as a jumping off point, because as you said, it's, it has a political context, but it's not a political film. And I think the music is really an ambassador for all of these ideas that we've been talking about. Mm. Thank you. Mm. And for me, it's a double thumbs up to what Afa said so articulately about the role of the arts in, you know, as part of our being human. Um, uh, my life is much richer for having heard Ilmar's interpretation of Duke Ellington and Aldito's interpretation of, of Rachmaninoff and of Rhapsody in Blue, which I've heard a million times, but never the way Aldito played it um, when we saw him and filmed him. And when I look around uh, and, and we've seen the data that only about 2% of the players in the classical music core nationwide are African-American or, or Latinx, I realize what I'm missing, you know, that I'm missing the interpretation of the canon um, from the, the depth and breadth and scope of what America is and could and should be. 
So that is my my hope that as we move forward, we we hear more interpretations of the canon, and that it does what Afa, you know, so eloquently said, which is elevates all of us individually and collectively. Mm, thank you so much, and Ilmar. Your last closing thoughts. What are you looking forward to as an artist in this moment? Well, the, the movie is actually a beautiful family uh, story that we will have and cherish forever. Me and my kids, their kids. And um, also, I love that it's a catalyst for um, social change. Um, in terms of the two countries, although the, the, the movie is about family, it also touches on, on, on those differences that actually divide families and uh, hopefully we'll raise awareness and uh and the next opening because there will be a next opening will be more permanent like i just hope that it goes that movie ends up being in somebody that can make a decision and uh let's say take that embargo just for good and have families being able to collaborate uh in a family level and on business level on every level and also i love that um in the in the new awareness of uh, of the lack of diversity in classical music, you know, we happen to be two dark-looking Cubans, so it it also puts light on on people that don't look European and do play European music, standard classical music. Hopefully, that inspired uh, people uh, with dark complexion to venture into into arts that usually they associate with with, uh, you know, European looking people, usually older. Uh, so I, I just like that the movie has that effect. It goes beyond my own family story and, and it actually uh, is a catalyst for, for various social um, uh, changes that are due. Well, thank you so much to all of you. Very meaningful conversation, uh, so moving. This film is just absolutely wonderful. Um, I want to give you all thanks. Thanks to Afa Dworkin, president and creative director of the Sphinx organization, Ilmar Gavilan, violinist and member of the Harlem Quartet, and filmmakers Marsha Jarmel and Ken Schneider for this incredible discussion. Um, thank you very much, Commonwealth Club members, Commonwealth Club of California, and Christina Nemeth, club travel director, for hosting this program. Um, if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club, please visit commonwealthclub.org. And if you're not a member, please consider becoming one. And if you happen to be in the mood to continue the spirit of Cuban music and Cuban solidarity, please join us at sfjazz.org tonight at Friday, uh, 5 p.m. Pacific uh, for Fridays at 5, where we will hear an incredible duet performance of Gonzalo Rubalcaba on piano and Pedrito Martinez on percussion. So if you go to sfjazz.org, you can join for $5 for one month that'll give you access to four different concerts so I hope you will join us and keep the Cuban spirit alive thank you again to my wonderful guests and I wish you all health and peace take good care everybody thank you you've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts Google Play and Stitcher if you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.